Sin acknowledges and pays respect to the owners of the land upon which the House of Sin and Studio stand, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. Welcome to An Hour in the Life with Charlie Bell. Today I'm speaking with Tria Manley. She is a community organiser at the Wilderness Society, an environmental lobby group. She is a great believer in the power of people to make change and counts herself among the lucky ones who get to do this for a job. She's always been a nature lover, inspired from a young age by the landscapes of her home country, New Zealand, and by the documentaries of David Attenborough. An arts major, she now spends her time training and educating people in environmental activism. Tria, welcome to An Hour in the Life. It's great to have you here. How are you? I'm really well, thank you, Charlie. Thanks for having me here. No worries at all. So as the lead community organiser at the Wilderness Society, uh, what are your day-to-day activities? It varies um, a lot, to be honest with you, but I work with one other community organiser here in Melbourne, and we have a lot of meetings with potential volunteers who want to get involved in the work that Wilderness Society does. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have a lot of one-on-one conversations to establish what their values are and if they work in line with ours. And then we bring them in to become volunteers with the Wilderness Society, which can be anything from helping us contact other people to get them to bring their MPs to Mm. advocate for environmental change. Um, Or we... You invite people to come along to events that we hold, fundraisers, forest tours, to take people out to the places that we're protecting. Mm. And a really core part of what we do is a community organising training program. And it's uh, a three-tier program with the fundamentals of community organising two-day program being the first step of that. So I co-facilitate that and do a lot of work um, putting people through that, just learning what their abilities are as humans to communicate effectively and ask people to take action with them on the things that matter. So when you're looking to bring someone on board... Uh, to the Wilderness Society and you're looking at their values, what sort of values are you looking for? Generally just a love of nature, um, but also a care for human beings and a sense of justice and equality, uh, a desire to have a safe and healthy, happy future for us and all other living things on the planet. Um, So really people from all walks of life can Mm. come and volunteer with us. You don't need to be a greenie that wants to tie yourself to a tree or (laughs) stop a bulldozer. Um, It's anyone who cares about a safe climate and clean water. What do you like about your job? I love meeting people and I love talking to people and I really particularly enjoy seeing the transformation as people start to understand how they can be agents of change in this world Mm. and to help people realise that confidence. That's one of the most enjoyable things about it. Um, Mm. I also get to go out to nature quite often um, as part of that and it's wonderful because Melbourne's a big concrete jungle and we Mm. don't always remember to go out and reconnect with the land that gives us that nourishment. What do you feel when you go out to nature? I feel calm, generally. Mm. I feel like a big deep breath of fresh air washes over me. Mm. Um, Unless part of the places I'm going to, which I do do for work, is the areas that are being destroyed, in which case I feel um, a burning sense of rage and sadness. But Mm. I can channel that usually into finding the ways to help fix that. Fantastic. How long have you been in your current position? Current position, one and a half years. And were you involved with any environmental causes prior to that? Yeah, I was working at the Wilderness Society for about four years before that. Um, I started out on the streets as a face-to-face fundraiser, Uh. inspiring people to join up as monthly contributors. Um, And I did some volunteer work as well with other environment groups, Um, lots of them, you know, 350, Get Up, Greenpeace, 
um, a group of people from Friends of the Earth, and in New Zealand I was quite involved with Greenpeace from a young age, volunteering. On this show, Now in the Life, the guest chooses all the music and they explain what those songs mean to them. First up, you've selected Beds Are Burning by uh, Midnight Oil. Mm -hmm. What does this song mean to you? I grew up with the song and I always loved it. I loved the lyrics, not that I understood them at the time, but there was just something about the spirit of that song that really spoke to me as a kid in the 80s. And then when I moved to Australia and understood what the lyrics meant mm. and driving around Uluru two years ago blasting it, mm. just really struck a, a massive chord with me. Fantastic. Well, here it is. Beds up and by Midnight Oil. Enjoy. And that was Beds Are Burning by Midnight Oil, an absolute classic. Today I'm talking to Tria Manley, who is a community organiser at the Wilderness Society, which is an environmental lobby group. Uh, so Tria, what is the purpose of the Wilderness Society? To protect nature um, and more recently act on climate and mobilise and form deep connections with people all across Australia so that we've mm -hmm. got an active supporter base of more than 100,000 people. Um, we've been campaigning on things for a long time and having lots of great wins, and we've also kind of plateaued, so we know that we need to grow by reaching outside of our ordinary sort of people that we would talk to. So we have this community organising program, which I'm part of, mm. which is there to go beyond who we would normally talk to and talk to all the Australians and people who live here mm. who know that we need to do something but wouldn't necessarily identify as an environmentalist. Mm. What is the most effective way to influence government policy? Getting the constituents of MPs to write to them in many cases. Um, right. You need really strong policy, obviously, so there's a lot of research um, that goes into what a good policy would look like. Mm. Um, we've got lots going on at the moment around some better laws for nature, mm -hmm. federal environment laws that actually have something strong behind them. Um, but talking to MPs and having everyday people in their electorates talking to them is extremely effective. How is the Wilderness Society funded? We're funded 100% from donations. About 85% of that currently is from people who make regular donations, either monthly or annually. Mm -hmm. There are some people who make significant gifts from time to time, so we've got a mid and major donor program. Um, they're part of a key relationships team, and we also have some bequesters in there as well, so people who leave us assets or money in their wills kindly when they pass on. Um, but yeah, 100% donations. Hmm. And the people that might not be able to afford to give substantial amounts, uh, you know, the sort of people that might give uh, $50 a month, do they make up a significant proportion of the total funding revenue? They are the majority of people who we receive funds from. Wow. Yeah. What year was the Wilderness Society founded? 1976. Oh, okay. Yeah, just around the um, threat of damming the Franklin River down in Tasmania. Okay, and was that the spark that ignited the Wilderness Society? It was the spark that ignited it, and then when that campaign was won in the early 80s, the Wilderness Society proper was established. Huh. Can you give a background of that situation? What happened with the Franklin? Yeah. Yeah, so in Tasmania, I don't know if you've been there, but the southwest wilderness is absolutely stunning, very, mm. very wild, um, and there had been before the threat to the Franklin and the Gordon Rivers, a threat to Lake Pedder that was going to get flooded for a hydroelectric scheme. It's this weird tension because hydroelectricity is what we might think of as clean energy and renewable. It's wonderful harnessing the power of water. It's not burning coal, oil or gas. Mm. But it also means damming places and if there's a really biodiverse, beautiful place, it will be destroyed. And so a lot of people in Tassie were very passionately opposed to the damming of Lake, or the flooding of Lake Pedder. 
but it mm-hmm. happened. And then when they heard about the threat to the Franklin, they were like, no, nah, there are some places that you won't touch. Mm. And so they rallied together in a way that hadn't really been seen before. 6,000 people put their, their bodies on the line to go down and blockade. Wow. Which, if you think about that in 1976, is pretty remarkable. I think the biggest mm. protests around before that was around the Vietnam War. Mm. Um, but what it did was catapulted this iconic place in Tasmania into the Australian mainstream, and people rallied from all over the country. Um, mm. It was led by Dr. Bob Brown, who mm. then went on to found the Australian Greens. Mm-hmm. He founded the Wilderness Society as well. When he went into politics, he stepped down from our organisation because we're not political. Um, but yeah, it was just a really fascinating look at how a place could capture the hearts and minds of people to the point where they wanted to take action to protect it. And then they did. And with that win, people realised that we can come together and protect some of the beautiful places that we love. And is the Franklin River now, at least in the foreseeable future, guaranteed to be undammed? Yeah. How has the Wilderness Society changed throughout the years? It's Mm -hmm. constantly evolving. Um, Mm. We have a a structure where there were originally dozens of branches all around the country and we've kind of wrapped it into more of an incorporated society. Um, Mm. And we've gone from only being about nature conservation, looking at protecting really significantly um, high conservation value areas, Mm. to realising some years ago that if we weren't going to act on climate, we can protect all the beautiful places we love and then in 50, 60, 70 years' time when global temperatures are rising and our wetlands have dried up and we're having more significant intense weather events, it doesn't matter if we've got national parks because they'll be destroyed anyway. Mm. So we shifted focus and started working on keeping fossil fuels in the ground while we realised that we needed to shift the general culture in Australia to help people understand that when we connect with nature and we respect this place that gives us life, that's when we've got a real chance of of a safe future. Mm. Was it a heavily debated decision to shift that focus onto climate change? Yeah, there was definitely some debate around that. Um, But we have a collaborative strategic planning process. Mm. And so all voices get in the room and are heard talking about the benefits of what we do or don't want to work on, um, prioritising certain campaigns over others. Mm. And why do you have to prioritise certain causes? Because we don't have enough people or resources to do all of the things that we want to do. Uh, Do you have any foresight about how the Wilderness Society will change in coming years? Yeah, it's really exciting. Just this week, we are in the process of launching a new brand. So we're repositioning ourselves in the environment movement from being a nature conservation group, Mm -hmm. who mostly does lobby work, to really bringing in a systems approach to it and looking at the systems that underlie everything. Mm. Uh, So we have a new logo, we've got a new brand which is all around life support and focusing on how humans interact with the environment as well. Speaking to an audience that doesn't necessarily classify themselves, as I said before, as an environmentalist, everyone at heart loves nature, but not not everyone would call themselves an environmentalist. So we're shifting the way we communicate to help people realise that it's not some weird lefty thing that they can do Mm. to look after the planet. Um, And I think that's really coming into the consciousness of a lot of people anyway. We've seen so much recently around plastics pollutions and other kinds of pollutions. 86% of Australians like agree that climate change is happening and that we need to mm. do something about it. Mm. Why do you believe that everyone loves nature at heart? Because everyone I've met, and there have been thousands of people over the years, has somewhere in nature that they love, even if they haven't experienced it often 
or even if they don't get out there as much as they can. I think there's something in our child, in a child, that connects with some kind of nature, mm. some kind of natural world. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's really cool. So the next song that you've selected is Old Man by Neil Young. What does this song mean to you? This song, uh, it's just an old favourite. I grew up listening to Neil Young. It reminds me of my dad. Mm. Not to call the old dad. <laughs> but um, it's just such a beautiful song. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, here it is, Old Man by Neil Young. And that was Old Man by Neil Young. So, Tria, what do you think people specifically get by spending time in nature? There's quite a bit of research coming out these days about how nat- like being in nature physiologically changes us. And so ions, free radicals, all these sorts of things that come to us living in a city and being surrounded by technology all the time um, can be sort of pollutants for the, the body. But there's yeah, when you go out into a natural environment and breathe fresh air mm. or be around a, trees or rivers, it physiologically changes us and it's been shown to be really good for people's mental health. Um, and I like to think about the fact that if people are stressed out or stuck in an office, one of the first things we want to do is go and sit under a tree or go and chill out somewhere away from a built-up environment. Like cities are great, but nature, I think, brings a restorative property that we don't get through other things. Combating deforestation is one of the Wilderness Society's biggest campaigns and one that you're heavily involved in. At what rate is deforestation occurring across Australia? It's pretty hectic, to be honest. Um, it varies from state to state. Mm-hmm. In Queensland, up until we recently had some new environment laws put in place, which was awesome. Um, imagine the Melbourne Cricket Ground, right, Charlie? Yeah. Fill that up with native vegetation and then take a bulldozer, two bulldozers and chains and clear it every three minutes. Oh, every three minutes? Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, so up to 400,000 hectares a year, um, killing countless millions of animals, also Mm. massively contributing to climate um, output, you know, carbon Mm. releasing. Uh, In Victoria, in our native forests, on our doorstep, you know, an hour and a half away, up to, you know, between four and eight MCGs every day is cleared. And the vast majority of that, you know, around 90%, is pulped and wood chipped and turned into paper. So not used for quality timber or flooring or veneers of buildings. It's it's literally turned into cheap office paper. And why does deforestation occur? In Victoria, it occurs because there was a wood pulp agreement made in 1996 which um, guaranteed that there would be a supply of cheap wood at the same price up until 2030. And so at the moment, it is cheap and easy for government-owned logging company Vic Forests to log these forests and destroy them. Unfortunately, the wood's running out, the paper's running out. The forest ecosystem of the mountain ash is actually, it's been uplisted to critically endangered. Mm. And yeah, like two years ago. So we have animals who live in these forests that are also critically endangered. You might have heard of Leadbeater's possum. Yeah. 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 We've got greater gliders as well, which are also, you know, working their way up to critically endangered. But these are flagship animals. So when they are, um, or like indicator species, so when they're in trouble, we know that the whole forest ecosystem is. And yeah, there's a lot of research now through a combination of overlogging, industrial logging, um, bushfires and other incidents 
that the other ecosystem itself is going to collapse if we don't stop logging it, which is pretty tragic. Are there any actions undertaken to protect the animals in these deforested areas? Yeah, so when the Leadbeater's possum was uplisted to critically endangered, it brought into play a set of um, like things that needed to be done in order to remove it from that status. And one of those was that there was a logging exclusion zone. Wherever a possum is sighted, mm-hmm. immediately a 200 metre buffer around where it was spotted um, was imposed so that logging couldn't happen, which is something. Um, it's not enough because those possums can roam up to a kilometre a night, so 200 metres isn't sufficient. However, it's better than nothing. Mm. Um, but yeah, sometimes when there are sightings of other animals as well, there can be injunctions to stop the logging, but it's not happening fast enough. And it relies on citizen science to go out there, survey at night in mm. pretty full-on conditions to locate these animals because the surveys that are done by the department um, don't usually reveal anything because they often are done at the wrong time of day or done from a desktop computer rather than actually getting out on foot in the forest. Mm. And so you mentioned some new laws were introduced to reduce deforestation. Yeah. What were they? So it was a set of um, laws to make land clearing stricter up in Queensland. About, it was before my time, but about 15 years ago, we campaigned really um, effectively in Queensland to get land clearing laws put in place, which meant that it was harder for a small group of individuals to clear huge tracts of land without getting approvals. And then when the Campbell-Newman government was elected, they wound all of those laws back, and so deforestation took off massively. And before the state election in Queensland last year, we did an awful lot of work around um, you know, educating the public about the fact that this was happening again, and they then put pressure on their MPs so that when the government was elected, they were elected on a promise that they would get stricter laws in place to protect you know, vegetation areas and make the land clearing harder. Mm. And so... It's, it's just basically made it a bit harder for people to go and clear without getting full permits or doing proper surveys. Um, again, it's not exactly 100% what we wanted because there's still a bunch of deforestation going on, but high conservation areas have been protected, which is a good outcome. Mm. Yeah. And do you think the Wilderness Society had a role in the introduction of those new laws? Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. It wasn't on the agenda before we got out there and started talking about it. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, why don't governments prioritise the environment as much as the Wilderness Society would like them to? I wish I knew the answer to that question. I feel like it's not seen as a priority because it's there and it's always been there. And there's a lot of mm. good spin by a lot of powerful companies telling people who don't have direct access to see and experience what's being destroyed, um, telling them that everything's okay and that things look good on paper and that we need to keep business as usual because if we don't then people will suffer in terms of losing jobs or Mm. x company won't make the profits that they need to in order to stay afloat and it becomes this competition between the environment supports life and humans and jobs and you know bottom lines and profit margins and things and I think it's just a story that's been told really well by some powerful individuals for quite some time Mm. Um, I haven't met a huge number of MPs in my time but the ones that I have met all care and all listen and usually the reason why they don't support something is because they don't understand the issue so I see part of our role is helping them understand the issue so there would be some people with the opinion of I live in the city I hardly go out to nature why should I care about protecting it what do you have to say to them 
If you live in Melbourne, every time you turn on your tap and drink fresh water, that's filtered by our forests. Mm-hmm. Our forest water catchments supply us with our water. So even if you don't want to get out there and enjoy them for their sake, if you want to appreciate clean drinking water, then you should care about that. The next song you've chosen is As On by Salmonella Dub. Yeah. What does this song mean to you? Yeah, Ease On. It's, um, Salmonella Dub doesn't sound that nice, but they are an <laughs> iconic Kiwi dub and roots band, and I grew up listening to them, and this was my summer road trip music around New Zealand, so it brings back really awesome memories of being out in the landscapes there. Here it is, uh, a Kiwi classic, As On by Salmonella Dub. <laughs> Welcome back to An Hour in the Life with Charlie Bell. I'm speaking with Tria Manley, who is a community organiser for the Wilderness Society, which is an environmental lobby group. So the Wilderness Society is pursuing a movement for lasting change. What does this involve? It involves talking to people who wouldn't normally identify as being an environmentalist, Mm. helping them realise that we have a tremendous amount of power when we communicate it in an effective way to people who can make decisions like local council or state MPs or federal MPs. Uh, Mm. I like to think about the fact that no significant change has ever happened in the world without a group of people from the grassroots coming together and lobbying for that amongst themselves and, and coming up with this campaign and a message that they can then take to the people who have the power to make those changes. So infrequently, I don't think of any examples where government has just decided on a whim to do something like give Mm. women the vote or Mm. provide civil rights to people of colour in the states or some you know ending slavery that didn't come from them that came from us and so when we want to see this shift in how we treat the environment instead of seeing the planet as a resource that we can take from um, and understanding that it's part of a system that we're also part of and what we do has a massive impact on it Shifting, um, so it's two things I suppose. One is helping people realise that that's the story we want to tell and that's what reality is, Mm -hmm. as I see it. Um, And then communicating that to our decision makers to make um, choices around industry, around future employment, around how we generate energy, what our transportation looks like, that take that into consideration. Mm. It's not all about the cold hard cash. Yeah. 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 And what... Uh, conversations do you encourage uh, your street volunteers to have with the general public? It's very easy for people who are really passionate to come in and start lecturing people about how we need to be protecting this p- patch of forest because of this mm. you know, particular animal that lives there or how this climate crisis has reached a point where we can't not do something. Instead of coming in with sort of a, a judgement as we describe it as a wagging finger, we offer an outstretched hand to help people come into the movement and take action together. Helping people realise that not only can we make choices like that, but that we must. Um, For example, reducing our waste. For example, switching to clean energy or picking up the phone and calling your local MP and saying, hey, when was the last time you got out into the forest and did you see how it was being destroyed and how do you feel about that? we've got this really great solution, which is protecting it with a national park, which will be way better than continuing a dying industry of industrial QFL logging for paper. Mm. So having those kinds of conversations. Also about tapping into what people's core values are. I mentioned that before, mm. but um, 
you know, I might walk down the street and see someone who looks nothing like me and who has a job that's completely different than mine, but we both really appreciate, um, you know, bird life or fresh drinking water. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are some day-to-day activities that the average person can do to help protect the environment? From small choices, like choosing to use re- reusable containers when you um, buy any food, to you know, not having takeaway coffee cups, to mm. talking to your friends and neighbours about why you care about nature and the fact that it's a really good, normal thing to do. I'm really a big proponent of normalising environmental action because we're all part as a you know keep coming back to part of this planet and the system um and also if people want to we offer training and how to talk to mps who Mm. are humans just like us and desperately want to hear from the people who vote them into power so they understand what it is that they need to do on behalf of you Mm. what is the harm of using plastics um plastics last forever i think as well Mm. like it doesn't break down and it's I mean, plastics are amazing. It's an absolutely phenomenal invention. Mm. But because it doesn't break down, that's a problem. Most plastics these days are also made from oil. So you've got this whole issue with extracting oil and the the Mm. risks that are surrounding that. And also because plastics have become such a part of our life, I think we use way more of it than is sustainable. If we look at the recycling crisis, which is happening in Australia and New Zealand at the moment, with China not purchasing our recycling anymore, we have to start dealing with it ourselves and it's being just stockpiled huh. in warehouses. Um, so why has China stopped buying our recycling material? They're probably tired of dealing with our waste. <laughs> <laughs> um, huh. I think they no longer have the facilities to manage it as well. Um, right. Yeah, it's a, I think 50% or thereabouts of Australia's recycling is shipped over to China for huh. processing. What are your thoughts on vegetarian and veganism? Can you have an impact um, by eating less meat and less animal products? I definitely think that plant-based diets are a very excellent way of reducing impacts when you look at um, statistics about how much certain kinds of farming uh, use water, contribute to methane and carbon emissions. If you look at the land clearing, a lot of what's being deforested up in Queensland is to graze beef cattle. Mm. Um, I also think that there are some people who are much better placed to easily have a plant-based diet mm. uh, than others. So far be it from me to tell someone who lives in Central Australia and doesn't have access to the same um, produce that I do that they should be eating a plant-based diet because it's good for the environment. Mm. I do think that city-based livers um, have a huge amount of impact in that regard. And there's a lot of global support for it now. I've noticed mm. even some of the bigger environmental organisations getting on board with that green piece have started pushing for a plant-based diet. The Guardian had a great series on how we need to start reducing the amount of animal products that we eat. I mean, if you want to bring the ethics of eating, consuming animals into mm. it as well, that's a whole other, whole other yeah. story. But in terms of environmental impact, I think it's a, a necessary consideration. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so now, moving on to your background, uh, where were you born? I was born just outside of Wellington in a little town called Porirua. Um, but moved at a very, very young age to the top of the South Island in New Zealand, in oh. Nelson. Okay. Yeah. And can you describe Nelson? It's a big bay. It's beautiful. There's mountains everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of forested areas. There's rivers and beaches. I didn't really realise it when I was growing up, but living on the edge of a national park was quite a special thing. 
We would go to the beach often. We didn't have a lot growing up in terms of material things, but we always had close access to camping spots or even just cycling to the beach to go for a swim. Like, I didn't realise that wasn't normal for a lot of people. Hmm. And how big is Nelson? Population's about 70 or 80,000 people oh, okay. in, the, in the town. There's a lot of surrounding areas as well, so the total population is the top of the south there. Nelson Bays is probably maybe 100,000. Hmm. Do you think growing up more rurally had an impact on you than if uh, compared to uh, if you grew up in a metro environment? Yeah, like I've got no comparison, but I could say definitely, even even in suburban Nelson, we'd have a house with a quarter acre section. And this is like commission housing. So mm. it wasn't like only the wealthy had access to this, it was everybody. We had big backyards with fruit trees and parks down the road to go climbing, uh-huh. rivers to go hunting for eels or whatever it was. Yeah, well, yeah. Were there any particular activities or events throughout your childhood that ignited your passion for environmental protection? I had a teacher when I was 10 who I didn't realise until many years later really sowed the seeds of environmental action in my year in school. Mm. Um, Just the books that we would read and the fact that we'd go for hikes in nature and feel connected to it. Um, But I also watched a lot of David Attenborough documentaries and so I felt very connected to the natural world and wanted to see it and explore it Um, but it wasn't until sort of early teens I think that I realised that there was a lot of um, destruction going on Mm. in New Zealand not just in other places Um, you know I just remember I read the Lorax when I was a kid Dr Zeus Okay. do you know the story? no I don't what's the story? It's a story about it's a story about capitalism basically, but it uh-huh. um, results in this beautiful land where these great trees grow, um, being used as a resource to make this like new kind of clothing, and then people realise they could start making money off it, and so they started deforesting all these areas, and they end up just cutting down every tree on the planet basically. And mm. there's this character called the Lorax, who's the spirit of the trees, and he's this grumpy old dwarfy man character. Um, telling the story about how we need to be protecting these places instead of destroying them to make a quick buck. Um, so I read that at a young age, and I guess that really resonated with me as well. Do you think um, the Nelson community, a, a smaller town, um, seemed to have a greater passion for protecting the environment than, say, somewhere like your average uh, city dweller in Melbourne? Yeah, I'd say so, because people, a lot of people came to the area to do small-scale farming, um, but also because there's beautiful places where people can go out hiking often on the weekends, um, mm. gorgeous waterways as well. And I think there's a lot of intentional communities in the area as well, so people who wanted a different way of life coming together, working together as a community, and part of that ethos ties into environmental protection as well. Mm. Yeah. Do you remember the first environmental cause that interested you? Um, it was French nuclear testing in the Pacific, uh-huh. a place called Mororoa Atoll, which was, I guess, on our doorstep, but we had this relationship with the Pacific because of how New Zealand's interacted with it over the years. Mm-hmm. And the French had started, yeah, do, conducting nuclear tests. And we were like, why are you testing here? Why not do it in your own backyard if you think that mm-hmm. it's so safe? And I think there's always been a tension as well because of the bombing of the Rainbow Warrior back in, I think it was 1981. You know, Greenpeace's flagship vessel was bombed and sunk in Auckland Harbour by uh-huh. the French. 
Um, not to cast aspersions against the French, but they were conducting nuclear testing, and I was like, this is wrong. Mm. Like, how is it possible that some global force can just decide that they want to go and do something, and the people in this area have got no way to say no? And that was the first rally that I ever went to. A group of us were given the afternoon off school to go marching down the main street to protest it. Um, mm. We created a, a stage, like a theatre piece about it as well. So we started to, starting to use art and activism to convey our message. The testing went ahead, unfortunately, but um, that was the first thing that really, really got me going. Was it within yourself that you found this passion or was there also an aspect where you latched onto that because of a group of friends or another figure? I felt like it definitely came from within, but there were other people around me who felt similarly, and so we found a way to do things together. Um, and my parents have always been quite respectful of the environment. They weren't overt greenies or anything mm. like that. They were quite um, quite straight-laced in many ways, but they definitely sowed a love of nature in me and a desire to look after it. Mm. Yeah. When you were coming to your final years of high school, did you have much direction around what you wanted to do? I had no direction, to be honest with huh. you. Like, it's interesting, um, I've always been passionate about the environment, but at school my strengths were in the performing arts and English. Uh, I, up until my second to, year, second to last year of school, thought that I would be an actor. Like, I wanted to go to the New, Ger New Zealand Drama School mm. and study acting. I was really involved in, yeah, performance and public speaking. Mm. And then in my last year of school, I, I moved schools, actually, to study some subjects that weren't available at the one that I'd been at huh. and I discovered ancient history and classics and I've always sort of felt a fascination around mythology and ancient history um, and I found a course that taught me about ancient Greece and Rome wow. and my teacher was phenomenal and she really inspired me and so kind of at the last minute decided to go to university hmm. but before you know, three months before the end of the year and the final applications for uni, I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought maybe I'd go travelling. But yeah, I wound up at university studying classics and ancient history. Oh, wow. Yeah. And where did you do that? University of Canterbury in Christchurch in New Zealand. Oh, great. Yeah, I've got a really great collection, really great um, faculty. Huh. Yeah. And what did you do when you finished university? I worked for a year at uni and then I went back to do another year of papers out of interest because I okay. kind of didn't know how to navigate the real world if you want to call it that mm. and then I decided that I should probably get a job because mm. everyone was telling me I should get a job okay. and I got a job at a telecommunications company in the call centre it was like any old thing that I could do just to pay the bills in the meantime yeah. and I ended up staying there get this for eight years wow. uh, just working my way around acquiring lots of different skills everything from internet help desk to a little bit of project management to knowledge-based management and writing processes and training people. Mm. Um, ended up as a, a test analyst, so testing billing platforms and software and all sorts of stuff, and then realised that I was just kind of passing time, mm. and so I quit, and yeah. then travelled for a year, and then moved to Australia. Huh. Yeah. Was that a, a really tough decision for you? No. No, because I'd reached a point, I just had always been talking about how I didn't ever want to do something that I wasn't passionate about, but I just hadn't figured out what that was yet. And so I just saved up a bunch of money and I thought, what's the worst that could go wrong? Hmm. Better to take a leap of faith, do something that I'm actually going to enjoy or explore, instead of being tied to this thing that I just sort of fell into and was doing because it felt comfortable. Yeah. And how did you find out what 
you wanted to do after you quit that job? It was a bit of an interesting process because I've always known that I like to help people realise how awesome they are. Mm. Um, I've had a lot of different roles as a teacher or a facilitator over the years, whether it was tutoring at university to training people at my call centre job to teaching belly dance or then, you know, training other people how to have conversations. But I married that with environmental activism when I moved to Australia and landed mm. the job as a face-to-face fundraiser. And I was like, oh, I can work for the environment and, and use all these other skills that I've acquired. I don't need a degree in environmental science, which I'd always thought that I did need. Mm. Um, I don't need to be a researcher necessarily. All I need to do is know how to inspire people. Mm. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone that's in a job that isn't necessarily their passion and they don't know where to go next? I would ask them to think back to what made them happy as a child Mm. and experiment with new things or try and find something about the job that they are passionate about. Um, And if all else, I mean, not everyone has the luxury of quitting a job. It's Mm. not that easy for a lot of people. Um, So I wouldn't necessarily suggest that everyone can just pack it in. Yeah. But I would almost suggest... You know, seeking some kind of guidance from friends or family or even a professional who's there to help you figure out what it is that you want to do, what you're truly passionate about. Do you think, so the skills that you acquired uh, in your telecommunications job, sounds like they've been very useful in um, your current job and in jobs leading up to it. Would you ever say it's a good idea to stick at something to build those skills and then apply them in another field? If you can find a way to keep yourself happy while you're doing that, I wouldn't recommend trying something and as soon as it doesn't seem to work out, throwing it in. Throwing it in. You know, sometimes it takes a, a recalibration of how we think about things to find the value in what we're doing. Mm. Um, but I'd set a time limit on it as well so that you don't end up spending years in a job you don't love. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Tria, up next you've selected Good Fortune by PJ Harvey. What does this song mean to you? I love PJ Harvey. And this album came out at a really cool time in my life. I Mm. was just doing a lot of things. I was, you know, doing a job that I loved. I was doing a lot of creative. um, I had a a great creative outlet as well. And I've always really respected and loved PJ Harvey. But I hadn't really got into her music until this album. And this one just transformed it for me. Well, here it is. Good Fortune by PJ Harvey. Welcome back to An Hour in the Life. Today I'm talking with Tria Manley, who is the community organiser for the Wilderness Society, an environmental lobby group. Um, so Tria, which nations are currently leading in protecting the environment? I actually think New Zealand's doing a pretty good job. Our new Prime Minister has taken some pretty decent steps to ending all um, offshore oil and gas exploration So no new leases are being opened up, which was quite a remarkable step, Mm. given who some of our allies are and how much pressure there is in the international community for us to continue exploring for these things. Um, But a lot of places in Scandinavia are also doing great work around renewables, around, you know, putting in place targets and taxes on companies that are really destructive. If you look at Australia comparatively, where some of the companies turning the most massive profits don't pay any tax to somewhere like Iceland or um, I think even in Norway and other places in Scandinavia, they're doing a good job. 
Um, you could look also to France, who are instituting all sorts of bans on, you know, food wastage or plastics. Really cool stuff that's happening there. Mm. So there are a lot of different uh, policy models to combat climate change mm. and um, protecting and to protect the environment. Um, of course, we have uh, like a carbon trade system, carbon taxes, then direct action, which involves um, providing subsidies. Do you have any opinion on which of these works best? I really think that each situation needs to be looked at and not, you know, tailor-made to every single scenario, but mm. I think thinking one solution is going to fix it all is a little bit um, simplistic mm. because, especially in a global context, some countries are able to contribute by reforesting, for example, and creating new carbon sinks, whereas other countries might be in a position where they can stop extracting fuels and switch to renewables. Maybe some countries are already doing that, and so it, there's no benefit in imposing new trading schemes because they're already doing the best that they can. Um, mm. I think Australia has a long way to go, and I think that all of those things are necessary. But things like direct action, absolutely not enough. Mm. Yeah. Where does Australia sit compared to other countries in protecting the environment? Look, we, we've got um, some of the, I think, still the highest mammal extinction rate in the world. Mm. Um, we are ranked number two in the world, number two or three, in deforestation. Mm. So we're leaders in deforestation. Mm. We are still up in the top one or two um, top carbon emitters per capita wow. in the world. So we could be leaders. This is one of the things that fuels me is that we are living in one of the richest countries in the world in mm. terms of resources, ability, humans, brain power, inspiration and, um, you know, all the bright ideas that come out of uh, people to, to help shift our future into something that's not this, like, archaic, weird old industry of burning coal and oil and gas. Like, why are we shackling ourselves to this? It doesn't make sense. It's holding us back. We could be leading. And, like, a really shining example for the global community so I think it's a really a missed opportunity if we don't. We're well positioned, but we need to act. Mm. Why is Australia lagging behind? I don't know, hey. Mm. Like, there's just some weird... I, I do... Like, I don't want to sound like some conspiracy theorist about these, like, global corporations which are in the pockets of government, mm. but I just don't know what other answers there are mm. because it seems like that's what it is. It's down to the, the lobbies, the mining lobbies and other big industries that know that they can make a lot of money before they're forced to change. Mm. Uh, Tria, we're going to have to wrap up shortly. Um, before we do that, could you please give some details of how people can get involved with the Wilderness Society? Thanks, Charlie. That'd be great. One of the main um, things that we can offer is amazing volunteer opportunities, learning how to be a community organiser, coming and getting involved meeting other people in your local community who share the same values that you do <clears throat> and taking these skills which are transferable into any walk of life. Uh, we do a free two-day community organising program. The next one is on the 14th and 15th of July. Mm -hmm. We're hosting it out in Yarraville because we would like to activate communities in the West. Um, yeah. But yeah, you can go to wilderness.org.au slash volunteer or you can just check out the website which has the new look and there's other ways to get involved on there as well. Great. And um, what do Wilderness Society members do? Members 
give us the ability to lobby on their behalf. Um, yeah. So we have, look, the number changes, but it's about 35 to 40,000 members at the moment, which mm-hmm. making us one of the largest advocates for nature in Australia. So every time we go to government, we represent this membership base, and so we allow, like, we provide a platform for the voices of the people who are involved. Members also contribute um, money because mm-hmm. that's what funds us, mm-hmm. but it allows us to do the work that we need to do. So it's this beautiful symbiotic relationship where we provide strength and a voice to actually get stuff done, which is what we've done for the last 42 years and had some pretty amazing victories, to be honest with you. Everything from protecting Tasmanian wilderness with World Heritage Listing to James Price Point in the Kimberley, lots of you know new laws in Queensland and mm-hmm. also kicking BP out of the Great Australian Bight when they wanted to explore for oil there. So lots of really great achievements that we can do through the power of our membership base. Wow. Well, Tria, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Charlie. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Um, So the last song that you've selected is January 26 by AB Original and Dan Sultan. Why have you selected this one? Because I think everyone needs to think more about what it means to be a person living on stolen land in Australia Mm -hmm. and what the impacts um, we as settlers have on Aboriginal Australian people, um, culture. This is a conversation that I think needs to be front and centre in everybody's mind, and it's a difficult conversation to have. And I think every opportunity um, someone has to promote a different way of thinking and to educate people on Australia's black history, the better. And this song nails it. So I would like to finish with it. Fantastic. Thanks again, Tria. Here it is, January 26th.